what does God sound like? What does God look like? How would you know if you had met God? In late 2016, having been approved to attend seminary, my life was in a moment of real transition. Everything was changing. And in my excitement, it felt like there was no time to take in the enormity of this change that was happening all around me. So like many times before, I gave myself distracting tasks and details to worry over. I just kept moving, hardly pausing to take in the markers of change in my personal life, was preparing to move, ending a career, and attending farewell dinners with dear friends, all the while mentally looking forward to what was to come. I was too excited to begin this new journey to really be present with these precious moments. And as a means of preparing myself for seminary and the vocation that was to follow, I devised a plan with a friend. I believe some of you might remember Andrew Canaan. I recall a phone conversation with him after arriving at Yale and sitting down on the cracked asbestos flooring of my new dorm room. And after allowing an appropriate amount of time for me bemoaning my new situation, Andrew said, as I recall it at least, Look, man, this seems bad. Okay, maybe even pretty horrible, but don't forget what's coming. You are about to go on a walk. You're going to put one foot in front of the other, and you're going to keep moving. You're going to walk from town A to town B, and then you'll eat, and hopefully you can get some sleep, and then you'll get up and do the same thing the next day. That's all you have to do, he said. Just walk. Then we'll talk again and see how you feel. That conversation was the full extent of my preparation for my first Camino de Santiago, no walking at the gym with a heavy pack on my back to get used to the weight. No breaking in boots, which is something you'll want to do. Just a friend reminding me that the first rule of walking was to walk. But I was certain that he could not possibly be right. My journey, my first real spiritual retreat, could not be so simple as moving from point to point with no discernible purpose. So I decided to add layers of complexity to my journey, and I allowed my sentimental nature to really be set free. And ultimately, I decided to pack some new essential items in a pack that was already too heavy. I grabbed my small book of common prayer, the one that was given to me at my own confirmation, and added it to the pack. Then, as if my Camino shell wasn't enough, I packed my Anglican prayer beads, beads that had been given to me by a very dear friend before I left town. Surely these items would invite a deeper connection to the holy as I walked from town to town. And I planned to walk carrying my beads and to stop and pray every single office each day, just to make sure everyone knew how serious this pilgrimage would be for me. Even with my careful plan, I was quite anxious as I arrived to the airport. But as I began to board my flight, my anxiety turned to glee. For even in the terminal, there were folks who, I assume, recognizing my shell and hiking pack, enthusiastically wishing me a buen camino. Everything felt right. 
and I couldn't wait to begin. So I was surprised when somewhere over the Atlantic, my anxiety returned. I began to wonder on the plane what in the world I had been thinking. I wondered how I could have let a trusted friend guide me into traveling across the world alone. How could I have let someone invite me to do something so foolish? As the plane landed, I could hear again my friend's advice playing in my head. Just walk, he said. And I allowed that voice to calm me a bit. All would be well, I told myself, if I just stuck to my plan. So on the first train to the city where I would begin walking, I opened my pack to grab my prayer book for noonday prayer. This was the moment that I remembered that I had also taken this book out on the flight. This was also the moment that I realized that my prayer book, in all likelihood, was safely tucked into the seat pocket in front of me, making its flight home. So much for my prayer practice. Not to worry, though. My Anglican prayer beads were still intact and in my view, and as I exited the train to begin my walk with my remaining belongings on my back, I clung tightly to this set of smooth wooden beads. I was holding them tightly, I promise, but apparently not tightly enough. For as I walked down the aisle to exit the train, they caught an upright seat handle, which sent most of the beads scattering onto the floor. Determined, if not a bit embarrassed, I gathered what I could of these precious beads and quickly exited the train. I took a breath and tried to calm myself. I took an inventory. I didn't have my prayer book. I'd broken my prayer beads, but at least I would still be able to walk in the peace and solitude that I had planned for. I'd been looking forward to this opportunity for so long to do as the old Baptist hymn says, steal away and pray, removed from the distractions and worries of my life so that I could listen for God. I think you all know where this is going. Not long after I allowed this centering thought to really take hold in my soul, while taking the first steps of my pilgrimage, I ran into a group of other pilgrims, a group of women, four women to be exact. These women could only be described as loud. <laughs> if you were walking within a quarter mile of them in any direction, I swear to you that their conversation could be heard with clarity. They also seemed to prefer walking side by side, which meant that they blocked most of the path most of the time, and they were slow. <laughs> On top of all that, they had the audacity to interrupt my silence, my prayer, with warm greetings and repeated attempts at casual conversation every time that I saw them. Clearly, they did not understand the point of my holy walk. To put it mildly, they irritated me. And here was the real issue. On the Camino, you see the same folks over and over again, getting to know them, coming up with nicknames because you can't possibly bother yourself with remembering their names. So ever the planner, I began to do everything that I could to avoid them. 
I would scarf down my breakfast and rush away any time I saw them on the horizon in the morning, or I would choose to linger longer at a table over lunch when they walked through, giving them space to move ahead. I wanted nothing to do with them. I needed quiet and prayer. I needed to hear God, I told myself, was preparing to be a priest after all. And so it was outside the city limits of Porto Marin, Spain, that I caught glimpse of them walking ahead of me again. About that same time, I saw a signpost offering a shorter route that could catapult me ahead of them in the path. If I played my cards right, I thought to myself that I might not even see them again after this moment. And that thought was so good that I couldn't pass it up. So rather than reading the sign carefully, I simply made the exit from the main path, relieved to find myself finally alone, back on the right path to my spiritual retreat, the one in my head, ready to hear God. So I was entranced by this newfound solitude, so much so that I even allowed my mind to wander a bit, thinking through all these big questions that would certainly occupy my thoughts in seminary, and that also meant that I stopped paying close attention to the path. Soon I got a bit off the path, maybe even quite a bit off the path, and right before real panic set in, I saw a ravine ahead. And just beyond that, the main path shining through the woods Carefully, I made my first steps down that ravine. About halfway down, my right foot caught a tree root, one that my eye didn't see. That sent my pack pitching forward, and from there, gravity took over. My body rolled to the very bottom of that ravine, and there I laid on the ground, on the side of the road, trying to catch my breath. That is precisely when I heard a familiar sound beginning to emerge. <laughs> A sound emerging from ragged breaths and choice words. It was the women. They were still talking. <laughs> loudly. Too hurt to pick myself up, I had no choice. I waited there on the ground that day until their footsteps came to a stop in front of me. Hey, they said. Hey, are you okay? I looked up at these women as they surrounded me. And with the sun blocking the faces that I had worked so hard to avoid looking into, the only thing that I could see was an outstretched hand. They helped me up. They dusted me off. They gave me ibuprofen. And then they asked, should we get started again? We did begin again. We walked, and sometimes we limped every remaining step together. We shared the stories of what brought us to this strange journey from beginning retirement to taking a much-needed break before the new school term began, discerning a new vocation in old age, and even grieving the death of a spouse. There was so much, as it turns out, that brought us together. So I joined in on their loud conversation. I walked side by side with them and became a part of their loud group. We broke bread together. We cared for each other and many others that we met along the way. We finished the Camino together, and we were changed together. 
My friends, that is as close as I can get to explaining what transformation means today. For despite our fears and anxieties, all the moments when we are convinced that we are not enough, when we feel most uncertain, most unmoored, God can be found, transfigured and in our midst if we look. It's never escaped my notice just how human the story of Christ's transformation is. Upon a closer reading, our gospel is not altogether miraculous today, or at least not entirely. For the attention of the writers in Luke is not solely dictated toward the dazzling white clothing and the transformation of God, even though our eyes move that way. Rather, it seems to be focused on highlighting the responses and actions of everyone on the mountaintop today, revealed or envisioned. And so God is the voice that calls out to us, reminding us that there is always something more than this singular moment. God is the hand that reaches out and pulls us close so that we can hear again that we do not need to be afraid. God walks beside us, moving us from solitude and back into the loud crowd so that we can see where our efforts are meant to be centered. And isn't it amazing that each of these divine actions is so deeply human? When you really think about it, isn't it stunning that each and every one of these things is something that we can easily do ourselves with anyone that we come into contact with? Today, Just like then, we are invited to ponder our call. We're invited to interrogate what it is that is being transfigured in our time. We are called to imagine and build a world where we are co-creators, co-sustainers, and co-redeemers with God. We're invited to remember that the solitude of perfection is not God's dream for our lives. That is why we gather around this font— to welcome Julian, Lucy, Nell, Amelia, Walter, and Catherine into our life in Christ through the waters of baptism. We take our vows together this day because we know that uncertainty is part of the path ahead. Today, we take the next step, the step into a transfiguration of our own, into the crowd. We're called to join in the work of building up the community around those who are baptized. We're given this chance to help them understand the world and to imagine what it could be with them, to show them how to walk in the midst of the needs of our world, to listen to their questions, and to empower them to begin to learn who they are and how God loves them. Because we have responsibilities if we're really walking in love, and that's why we're here actively working, not just with prayer, but with our bodies to build a world where all are free. If we're willing to do that for those who are being baptized and for each other, well, then we really could see a world transfigured, a world where fear no longer divides our families, where we value the lives of children more than the profits of gun manufacturers, where women's bodies are no longer seen as something to be legislated by men, where we can finally work toward reconciliation in the face of racism that still benefits the few at the cost of so many, where our rivers are free of pollutants 
and buoys covered in razor wire. We can do this at St. Luke's. All that's required of us is the courage to walk into the unknown, the willingness to be transfigured for the world, reaching out a hand when those around us are struggling, speaking when fear rules the hearts of those around us, speaking for justice when and where it is denied, speaking even when the ground around us feels unsteady, and then walking alongside each other, gently guiding each other from the allure of solitude and back into the crowd, learning to see our loud and needy family as necessary for our life. This is what love looks like. This is what is offered here for all of us. So let's take the next step together.